to read the passage for us that uh, Jacob's going to be teaching from this morning. We are still um, camped out in Matthew looking at the teachings of Jesus. This morning we, will, we are going to be in Matthew 5 in verses 21 through 26. Matthew 5 verses 21 through 26. Jesus says this, You have heard it said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and if there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, good morning. Thank you, Jenny. So there are literally so many things to get mad about. You can be mad about not getting the promotion that you wanted at work. You could be mad about the financial situation you're in. Maybe you are like me and you are what I call an assertive driver, which means you're very aware of the less than average drivers on the road. Maybe exclaim some certain words in the privacy of your own car. Any Yankees fans in the, in the house this morning? Oh, praise God, there's none. <laughs> you might be angry after last night. You could be angry about the way that someone treats you if you feel overlooked or disrespected or unappreciated. Maybe your anger is sparked by impatience about something not getting done on time or to the specific way that you want it to be done. Or you could be angered about injustice whether it's done to you or whether it's your perception of what's going on around us. And it is anger, the vengeful, unforgiving, ruthless indignation that can lead us to bitterness, conflicted relationships, grudges, and even distance from God himself. And it's anger left unimpeded that leads to things even like murder. Jesus, in our passage this morning, paints a picture of the human heart and the damage that anger does to us. And as we look at Matthew 5, we will see the severity and seriousness that Jesus portrays the inner workings of our hearts. Now, my name is Jacob Beach. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Scarlet City. 
And as we jump back into chapter 5 of Matthew this morning, we are still in the Sermon on the Mount series as an extended teaching session analyzing morality. And it's received by Jesus' disciples and the crowds that are following him. Our passage this morning is the first of six different sections in verses 21 through 48, where Jesus introduces a teaching from the Old Testament with a phrase, you have heard it said, followed by his interpretation of that law with, but I tell you. And it concludes in verse 48 to these six sections with Jesus saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And in each of these six passages, there is a contrast between the practical outworking of the law and Jesus's moral teaching. In each case, Jesus's interpretation is actually more stringent and demanding in its application. Jesus takes aim at the human's human heart's motives and attitudes rather than a literal conformity to the rules. Not only is Jesus making profound and deep applications of God's Old Testament law, but his assumption of authority to make such interpretations are a claim in and of themselves of his divinity and deity. It's a definitive declaration of God's will and sentiment. And since such an assumption demands a response from those who hear it. We might think, who is this? Who is this person that speaks with such authority? Which is the very response that comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 7. So as we approach this specific passage today and others in the upcoming weeks, let us recognize that Jesus himself, as God in human flesh, has a unique and trustworthy position to make such interpretations and connections. So to, today, beginning with talking about murder and anger, Jesus reveals to us that the life of flourishing begins with looking at the heart. It comes from regarding what is on the inside, the motivations that are below the surface of our actions and our words. Pursuing a blessed life, a life of flourishing, experiencing the goodness and peace, the calmness and balance of God, begins with looking at what is in our hearts. So let's look at the beginning of our passage today. In verses 21 and 22, we see the first instance of Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament law. Starting in verse 21, he says, You've heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now here, Jesus is referring to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. That's the passage outlining the sixth of the Ten Commandments. And the word here for murder is translated from phonuo, which is specifically talking about criminal murder, the unjust killing of another person. 
And anyone who does this is subject to judgment. That is, judgment by a human court, a crime that carried the death penalty in Jesus' day. Now, Jesus takes this Old Testament law a step further. He follows up in verse 22 by saying that the root of murder, anger and hatred held towards someone else in our hearts, that's what gives rise to murder itself. And those things, anger and hatred in our hearts, are no less culpable. In the eyes of God, holding vengeance and malice in our hearts towards someone else even if it does not lead to murder, are equally evil and sinful. Now, a legalistic interpretation of the sixth commandment that was held by many at this time was that as long as you don't carry out the literal act of murder, then you're all good. No murder, no sin. Easy peasy. But Jesus says no. He goes on to say that held anger, and bitterness towards a brother or sister, as well as insulting language, is an assumption of liability that is subject to God's judgment. And it says here, if you call someone raka, which is the Aramaic equivalent to idiot, right? It translates directly to empty-headed. Jesus says, you are liable, for sinning against that person and against God himself. You must answer to the divine court of God. If you call someone a fool, a moron, foolish, blockheaded, if you do this, you are liable to ultimate punishment. Now, Jesus here is taking it to the next level, right? He's the friend that invites you over to come watch a movie, and then when you get there, it's actually a five-hour documentary about European economics with subtitles. It's way more than you signed up for. Now, I had a job in high school working at a pet store, because who doesn't love puppies, right? And by the end of the first week, I was collecting baskets of live crickets to give to lizard people. Not actual lizard people, but people who had lizards. <laughs> lizard people. And I was also feeding frozen mice to giant snakes. Okay, that was more than I expected. I thought I could play with puppies, but bugs and snakes, no thanks. Jesus is making a radical and even uncomfortable point here in saying that God sees all manners of the heart. While you thought that you were safe so long as you avoided murder and expressions of anger and rage that a local court or justice system could convict you, Jesus is saying that there is no hiding from God. The heavenly court of the Lord sees all offenses of intention, visible and invisible. Jesus pushes past the conduct that is punishable by law of the state to the heart that generates such behaviors in us. Anger and hate would generate murder when unimpeded is the spiritual equivalent to murder, anger. 
This is a far-reaching and deeply troubling teaching from Jesus. If what's in the heart is what matters, then who stands a chance against the judgment of the Lord? If God can see what is behind our actions and judges that, the things that no one else can know, the things that only we can perceive, then who stands a chance? If all I have to do is not murder, I think that some of us can hopefully manage that. We can't maybe avoid anger or bitterness or wrath or resentment or animosity on the inside. Now, our city group meets at our house on Thursday nights, and this is a shameless plug. If you want to get involved in a city group, check out the website or email me or ask someone here about it, but it's good. And our group meets on Thursday nights, and this past week, my mom was in town because she was on her way to Washington, D.C. for the weekend. And I get a little bit wound up sometimes about an hour before our city group because we have two twins, about 18 months old, and getting them to bed and getting the house cleaned before people showed up, sometimes that can be a little bit stressful. And I'm a little bit self-conscious sometimes because we live in a small apartment for the size of our group and the size of our family. And all of this is kind of going on on the inside of me, and it's not like I'm obsessive or crazy, but this is kind of just how I feel sometimes before people come over. And so my mom promised my older daughter, Noelle, that they could uh, cut up a pumpkin, make a jack-o'-lantern before everyone uh, came over. And we were running out of time. And our front porch light is also broken, me just giving you every detail about our apartment. But our front porch light is also broken, so they couldn't uh, hang out outside and do this, which would have been perhaps preferable. So they, they kind of migrated. I was upstairs, uh, Ashley and I were upstairs putting the kids to bed, and they, they had kind of migrated during that time. Uh, onto the kitchen, uh, the dining room table in the front room. So I came downstairs five, four or five minutes before everyone was supposed to show up. And everyone's always on time, definitely always on time. Never on time. Uh, and, and, and what I saw was uh, uh, on, this, uh, on our dining room table, a pumpkin half cut up, the pumpkin guts were kind of on the table. Some of it were, was in an Amazon box. That was nice, but not all of it. And uh, uh, just, yeah, like I said, guts everywhere. Knife, you know. And so what did I do? How did I react? I murdered them. No, 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 I didn't murder them. Instead, instead of murdering them, I love them. Instead of murdering them, I uh, decided to kind of run around the house, light some candles, arrange chairs and whatnot, kind of hover over them with a rag, you know, kind of make subtle comments like, oh, there's a lot of mess going on here. uh, Look at the the time. Uh, And I just kind of start shooing them, rushing them. Uh, Just being very short, you know, being whiny and disrespectful and passive aggressive. Now, I didn't murder anyone. I didn't freak out in a fit of rage, but in my heart, I was having this inner conversation, you know? I was thinking, Mom, you know, Noelle, what are you guys doing? Okay, you're ruining my plans. 
You know, these people are going to see this sweet little girl with her grandma, you know, cutting up a pumpkin, and they're going to just leave. They're going to hate that. <laughs> they're going to think that we're dirty. You know, on and on and on. Just logical inner thoughts. And I was mad, okay? I was bitter. I was short. I was ungracious. But most of it was on the inside. And of course, I had the blessed opportunity to preach on this subject this morning. So I'd been thinking and working on this sermon all week. And I knew that what was going on in my heart was mostly only going to be seen by me and the Lord. And what Jesus is laying out in this passage is prickly, okay? What am I supposed to do with this passage, Jesus? Okay, there isn't an explicit application in the text. This is supposed to make us feel uncomfortable. The reading of this passage and the following passages that are going to come over the next few weeks, this should make us feel a little bit like, whoa, whoa, Jesus. What happened to like the chill, hippie flowers, Jesus? Come back. Come back, Jesus. Our response to this passage should be the realization that, you know what? I don't think I can do all of this. I don't think I can do what Jesus is saying God requires of me. This sounds like a lot. This sounds like the kind of overbearing, scary, mean God that I've heard people talk about before. And if God sees the matters of the heart, our inner feelings and our emotions, our inner responses, then those things, as well as our actions, make us liable to his judgment. Something needs to be done. Price needs to be paid. So looking at this passage, as well as the next few weeks, as we continue to look at these moral teachings of Jesus, we're given the awesome opportunity to figure out exactly what are we supposed to do with the teachings of Jesus and the biblical law. Okay, and I want to briefly, so as to give us a very important lens to look at these passages, I want to talk about three ways that we should receive the moral law in the Bible. Now, this is not off topic from what we're discussing this morning, because it's ever so critical that we read these specific things with, a, with an understanding. So let's touch on these uh, quickly before we return to the passage at hand. There are three important ways that we should receive and read Jesus' moral teachings and the biblical law. Three things, and they should come up on the screen. Number one, the law shows us our sin. The law shows us our sin. Number two, the law shows us our need for a Savior. And number three, the law shows us how to live. So let's take each of these three individually. So number one, the law shows us our sin. When we read Jesus' moral teachings we read biblical law, our right reaction is to recognize that we do not stand up to it. 
we see that we are unable to keep these laws perfectly. God is perfect. And even if we are somehow, you know, if we're somehow strong enough to make our outward actions align rightly, our hearts can never be perfect. We fail, we fall short, we miss the mark. Number two, the law shows us our need for a Savior. In recognizing that we are sinful and that we do not stand up to God's standard of perfection, the next logical step is to say, how then can I be acceptable to God? If the standards are too great to attain without an outside force or a source of said perfection that we need, then there is truly no hope. Therefore, our only hope is to seek an alternative option for personal and communal righteousness. Now, spoiler alert, it's Jesus. He gives us the acceptable righteousness and the acceptance freely by faith. So that's number two. And finally, number three, the law shows us how to live. These moral teachings don't exist solely for points number one and two. As we engage in understanding understand these teachings, we start to see, we start to understand, and we start to participate with the Spirit of God in aligning our way of life towards these things. We are to pursue a lifestyle of holiness, not out of guilt, not so as to attain acceptance or love from God, but rather because of that love, because of the unwarranted grace that we have been given, we seek to live a lifestyle of flourishing and blessedness as a way to pursue health and wholeness. So as we re-engage this specific topic today, and even more so as we read throughout the whole Bible and throughout this rest of this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we have to use these foundational principles to orient ourselves to God's word. So now we return to the question at hand, what do we do with the anger that we have in our hearts? Let's begin with looking at the mini parable that Jesus tells in the second half of our passage. Starting in verse 23, we'll go to 26. Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come back and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it, in fact, while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Here again, Jesus is using extreme language. It appears that Jesus is saying that because God takes so seriously the state of our hearts, when we hold anger and bitterness and animosity towards someone else, we cannot fully experience what it means to worship God with our grudges unsettled. 
The prophets of the Old Testament warned of the futility of worshiping God without a corresponding lifestyle of purity. Jesus himself in Matthew 6 and Matthew 18 demanded an attitude of forgiveness of those who sought God's forgiveness. When the worshiper themselves are at fault and has the power to make it right and does so, their worship is found acceptable. There is an encouragement here to not delay because a delay could lead to consequences. He mentions legal repercussions here in prison, but it's unlikely that he's talking only about practical advice to avoid criminal charges. This is not trivial, for God himself is the judge behind the bench. This is a warning, a warning that neglected grievances can have serious consequences. And time may be short. God's judgment of guilt will be paid in full down to the very last penny. Jesus, again, here is not mincing his words. He's saying it bluntly and explicitly. God sees what each one of us are made of. And though we judge a person by their actions and words, God also evaluates the motivations of the heart. He judges our character. Remember the old motivational poster that would be on the public school uh, hallway or classroom that would say, character is who you are when no one is looking. Well, old boy is always looking. And there's nowhere to hide. So what do we do about this? This is the end of the passage. There isn't a bow tied on to the end. There's just this. Now, of course, we aren't going to isolate this passage from the rest of the Bible. We're not going to isolate it from who Jesus is or the gospel message. But I don't want us either to miss out on the seriousness with which Jesus brings this moral teaching and interpretation. God's judgment knows no half measure. There is no compromise, no settlement, no bargain. Jesus is not going to let this slip past us. So here we go. Let's use our three principles. Let's do some live, personal, biblical reflection. So let's start with number one. This teaching about anger in our hearts shows us our sinfulness. This teaching about anger in our hearts teaches, shows us our sinfulness. This is where Jesus is spending most of his energy in this passage. We're supposed to hear and receive this candid teaching with full force. The anger in our hearts is real, it's sinful, it's wrong. No one here in this room, no one here in this room, whether you're well-dressed, whether you were late, whether you are annoyed about being here, whether you fought on your way here in the car, whether you smiled at everyone when you walked in, those who are sitting in the front, those who are sitting in the back, those who are serving in the nursery, God bless them, those who are going to be here late tonight putting in flooring, new flooring downstairs in the basement. No one here is exempt. No one here has a pure heart free from bitterness, anger, frustration, or hostility. No one. It may be to varying degrees. It may be more or less for some or others, but no one is 
exempt. And God's judgment, God's righteous judgment, if not removed or abated by repentance and reconciliation, will be a verdict of guilty. This is what Jesus is saying. You are a murderer because your words and the feelings in your heart kill. Let's let that sink in for just a moment. This teaching about anger in our hearts shows us our sinfulness. Now, point number two. This teaching about anger in our hearts shows us our need for a Savior. Point number one leaves us vulnerable. It leaves, leaves us defenseless. And we are without excuse. If what Jesus says is true, if he is truly God in the flesh, interpreting and teaching us the heart of God, then we are greatly in need. Imagine that you have fallen into a well. There's no rope. There's no footholds. There's nothing. Without assistance, without someone coming to your aid, you're in dire straits. The state of our hearts puts us at the bottom of a well. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if we foolishly dove into the well head first or if we fell in without intention. We are all in the well, all of us. And we need help. We need saving. We need deliverance. We need salvation. We need someone to do something that we ourselves do not have the power to do. We need someone to climb down into the well and lift us out. Someone with the power and strength to pull us out and give us new life in the face of death. That helper, that savior, that deliverer is Jesus. Ephesians, Ephesians 2 puts it so beautifully when it says that we were dead in our life of sinfulness, we were dead. All of us, apart from God, angry, vengeful, bitter. This is the picture that Jesus paints in this passage. But because of God's great love for us and his immense mercy and with incredible love, God made us alive. He made us alive through Christ even while we were dead in our sins, even while we were at the bottom of the well, he climbed in where we had no hope of salvation. He pulled us out of the well. And he didn't just tell us, hey, try not to fall in again. I'm not coming back in. But rather, he raised us to new life and seated us beside him in the heavenly places. He took our sin dead lives, and he made us alive in Christ. He did it all on his own without any help from us. He sat us in the highest seat in heaven. This is the Savior that we need. This is the only one who can deliver us from the judgments that we justly deserve for our sin. His sacrifice on our behalf, he takes the just guilty sentence that we have earned on himself. 
And in return, he offers us spiritual perfection. He offers us his adherence to the moral law, his obedience. He gives it to us for free by grace through our faith in him. And we need it. We need it because we recognize this need when we look at our own lives. Because we're still going to get mad. We're still going to be bitter. We're still going to struggle and fail to come up short. And that leads us to our final principle. Principle number three. This teaching about anger in our hearts shows us how we should live. We cannot now, after all of this, merely dismiss this teaching because we are covered by the grace of Jesus. We cannot neglect God's law because we have been saved from the bottom of the well. The parable that Jesus uses to illustrate his teaching about anger that is in our hearts and how we should pursue holiness, flourishing, and wholeness in this life is that not, not only because we feel guilty, not only because we feel guilty about what's going on in our hearts, not because we have to pay back what Christ did for us, not because we have to continually earn God's love and acceptance, but because we want to live a life of wholeness and flourishing that God offers to us. There are three things, because everything comes in threes this morning. There are three things that we observe from understanding this. Number one, we should examine our own hearts. Do not be afraid to look inward and consider the ways that you are feeling. It's okay to be honest with yourself, with others, with God. To those who look by faith to Christ for their salvation, there is safety in self-reflection. You are safe. Jesus will never, ever turn his back on you. So take stock. Be willing to call things as they actually are, anger, bitterness, resentment. Some of this can be done privately for some. For others, it might be helpful to process things out loud with others. But dig in, look at your emotions, feel these things. Bring those things out, let them breathe, let some light in. Don't neglect what is going on in your heart because God doesn't neglect it. And nor will he neglect you as you process these things. Number two, pursue reconciliation. This one's much harder, but the text here makes a point to say that it's important. While there is safety and security in our relationship with God, he doesn't encourage us to remain stagnant and inactive. Forgiveness costs a lot. It's humiliating. It can be humbling. It can be embarrassing even. Forgiveness is not flippant or insignificant. But anger costs something as well. Jesus here shows us just how serious that cost is. When we let it fester, when we let it grow, apart from reconciliation, it takes something from us. It robs us of our joy. It robs us of our experience of fullness of life. Don't hear me say that it's easy. All this week, as I worked through this, all I could do was notice how 
impatiently I reacted, how angrily, how bitter I felt towards people in my life, whether it was big or small. I was angry at my mom and my daughter because they were having a great time cutting up a pumpkin. Sure, there were reasons, but none of them justified why I acted and felt the way that I did. I didn't murder them, but I was not forgiving. I was not gracious. I waited two whole days before texting my mom that I was sorry for the way that I acted. And if I wasn't preaching from this passage this morning, there's a good chance that I may not have sent it at all. I have just tried to forget about it. And I share this small example just to say, engage in the pursuit of reconciliation. Some things are really big. Some things have lots of layers. They have years or even a lifetime of layers. Things that aren't going to all of a sudden be worked out because you heard me talking about it this morning. We have to remember that both anger and forgiveness cost something. How are we going to pay? One pushes us away from God and towards distress and misery. And the other pushes us towards God. God's spirit walking with us towards flourishing. How are we going to pay? And finally, our seemingly contradictory third application is get angry. We are way too quick to excuse our personal anger and indignation as righteous. James 1.19 says that everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. However, there are plenty of situations and circumstances that our emotions and convictions should be awakened to and provoked. When the justice of God is being impeded, when people are being mistreated, when human dignity is not being respected, God's people should rightly be exasperated and indignant. People like Atatiana Jefferson, who just this week was murdered in her home. Unjust systems being weaponized against those who are on the margins. Anyone who is made in the image of God who's being mistreated or oppressed. Followers of Christ should never apologize for calling for injustices to be made right. They shouldn't have to hide their passion or their emotions about these things. Jesus himself expressed grieved indignation and called people fools under the appropriate circumstances. And you can look at Matthew 23 for that example. So in that sense, be encouraged to get angry. Aim your sense of discrimination, of inequality in a fitting manner. Do not quickly self-justify your personal anger and indignation as righteousness. As James says, be quick to listen, be slow to speech, and slow to anger. But do not hesitate to speak and act in the ways of righteousness on behalf of an outsider, a widow, or an outcast. Now, that's the end. This is the end of the sermon. That's it. And here's what I want to happen now. And not just today, but this can become a regular thing. I want to, uh, uh, the band and, the, and those who are serving communion can go ahead and make their way back up.
For communion today, I want us to take some time to do some of that examination, some of that looking inward at the heart. I want us to not merely stand up when the music starts and form a line, but rather take this as an opportunity to take stock, to look inwardly at the state of our hearts. Before you come to make your offering at the temple and receive God's gift of grace, right? This is the story that Jesus told, the parable. We consider communion to be such a sacrament. So examine your hearts. Is there anyone that you are holding hate towards in your heart this morning? Is there bitterness or anger or hostility you have for someone that is not processed, has, has not been processed, that you have not considered reconciliation for? It should be very normal. It should be a very non-weird thing for a Christian who is completely secure in their faith to not take communion. We take communion every week as an opportunity to worship as well as an opportunity to partake in the tangible message of the gospel of grace and forgiveness. No one should be judging you. No one should be acting like you are a leper because you don't take communion or because you take time to process what's going on in your heart before taking communion. So let this be an opportunity for us to take stock of what's in our hearts and to consider how to live a reconciled life. This is not a test. There isn't a lightning bolt that is going to strike you, hopefully, if you, do, if you take communion while your uh, heart is in a state of turmoil or offense. But do not take this lightly, because Jesus does not take it lightly. He speaks definitively. This meal is for those who belong to Jesus Christ and for those who need and freely accept grace and mercy just as we should also give it. From 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You can go ahead and turn down the lights, and I invite you, come at whatever moment is appropriate for you. There's going to be one station here in the front, one station in the back this morning, changing it up. So take your time, come, eat, and drink of his grace. <laughs>